You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. I love with all my heart the hymn of the day for this coming Sunday where we hear the confession of St. Peter, the short version from Mark chapter 8, Thou art the Christ. Welcome back to Issues Etc. coming to you from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. The second Sunday in Lent, Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome. Great to be here. You wanted to begin with a brief discussion of the epistle reading. Yeah, so in so much of the church here, the epistle in the three-year lectionary just kind of runs its course through a book. In this section of the church here, that's not the case at all. It ties up with the other readings very well. And as I look across both the Lutheran service book epistle and the revised common lectionary epistle and the Roman Catholic Church epistle, they're all different today. And the texts we have are rich and and really excellent today. But the epistle, depending on which lectionary, which version of the three-year lectionary you're in, really does change the character and kind of the perspective and so I think that means the epistles kind of in charge today. So the Revised Common Lectionary appoints Romans 4. This is about the promise to Abraham, how faith is credited to him as righteousness. It's a perfect match for our Old Testament reading. It has a very strong affinity to that. It doesn't connect so well with the gospel, which is going to be the confession of Peter, get behind me, Satan, then followed by the prediction uh, that Christ will go to the cross and that we also ought to follow him and take up our crosses as we do it. 
The Roman Catholic Church has Romans chapter 8. If God's for us, who can be against us? He gave his own son. How will he not graciously give us all things with him? Very strong faith passage as well. And we're going to hear from Romans chapter 5 that since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're able to endure everything else that comes and the great comfort that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So all of these passages are about faith. They tie in well with both the Old Testament and the gospel. But ours is going to have a very particular angle. So in all of them, I will note this in common. They disclose that our sufferings and our afflictions are in imitation of Christ Jesus. When we say we're followers of Christ, we don't just mean that we're trying to follow in his footsteps, but that it is a necessity that those who belong to him will follow and be like their master, as Jesus says elsewhere. These texts all go a step further than that, not simply to call us as an exhortation to imitate Christ and to be rich in good works, but also to show us what is distinct about his suffering, that it saves us, that it is what delivers us, that Christ is not only an example to us, but is also our Savior, and maybe even primarily, as we're used to talking about it. It's just interesting that all of these passages have that in common. They really are aiming at good works and imitation, but they can't leave it at that. Paul, in particular, is always like this. He's always calling us back to the reason, the mercies of God by which he is beseeching us to be rich in love toward our neighbor. Christ's cross and his resurrection are encouraging to us who have to bear the cross after him. If he is born the cross and is risen from the dead, we also will bear the cross, but that also means we also will rise with him. So it's not only a message of if he can do it, I guess you ought to be able to also, but it's the message that he has saved you entirely gratuitously, and he is going to bring you through. So therefore, don't lose heart, O Christians. That gives us then this theme for the day, especially looking at our epistle, that this Sunday is going to be devoted to faith, and particularly faith in connection with our endurance in this life to reach the end of faith the eternal life that Christ has for us, prepared entirely by his work. So faith is not only going to be the fiduciary justifying relationship to the forgiveness of sins, to the message of the gospel that Lutherans are always very clear to speak about, but we're also going to speak about how faith is profitable to us. It's profitable to move us, to animate us on account of Christ's great saving work. In other words, it's just what Luther says, wherever there is forgiveness of sins, which we know we have by faith alone, by trusting in the promises of Christ accomplished by his blood, but because wherever there is that forgiveness of sins, there also is salvation and life, vitality that is given to us. We're going to talk about faith also as trust. I think this is one of the primary synonyms for faith that Lutherans want to point to, that fiduciary trust relationship. But trust as those who are weak. Compared to the Lord, we are incredibly weak, obviously, but particularly focusing on the reality that we are unable to save ourselves in any sense of the word, whether that's temporally in the particular predicaments we find ourselves in, but certainly eternally before the Father. We don't remove our own adversaries from us. That means that in some sense, we're going to survive them. We are going to out-survive them, you might say. Or the scriptures say this in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors over them 
Why more than conquerors? Because despite being like sheep who are slaughtered, yet we win the victory through the resurrection of the dead. So we do this by Christ's mercy and his rescue. Salvation itself then is the foundation of this. But we also trust in him. We pray to him. We ask him for endurance and to deliver us then in all matters of life until finally he delivers us into eternal life at the resurrection. We're going to hear about perseverance and endurance. And we're going to, I think, see that these are the discipline of a believer, the discipline that is natural to disciples of Jesus Christ. And those words ought to be related here. Sometimes we hear this used as an alternative to the word Christian or the word believer, which maybe have fallen out of favor in some circles. So people will say, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a follower of Jesus. That's great. Obviously, it's going to come from our gospel today. Whoever would be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily, as Luke adds. It's not, though, simply someone who's trying to act like our idea of what Christ is. I think that's often what people mean when they distinguish themselves, not as Christians, but as Christ followers, is they're trying to say that they're imitating the real Jesus attitude. And there's a way in which it does raise the question, do you understand Jesus in the way that the Gospels present him, or have you constructed your own understanding of what a Jesus Christ-like attitude would be? What we're going to see today in these texts from which that phrase, follower of Jesus, comes, it's that uh, his followers are those who are brought into conformity with him, into conformity to the one in whom they trust and believe. You see, faith is productive in us, and the produce that it makes in us is not simply the good, happy works, the nice things that you would expect a Christian or a follower of Christ to be doing, the things that you could be proud of, you might say, but the produce of faith in our lives is also this ability, this almost supernatural ability, I mean that intentionally, to bear up when no one is proud of you to endure suffering and rejection and to bear the cross boldly, even heroically, we might say, heroically, not as somebody who slaughters their enemies, but heroically, just as our head has done it, as Christ has borne it, confidently trusting in his Father's salvation. So I just want to mention this because this is not a secular virtue that we're trying to import into Christianity. This is absolutely what we're going to see in today's text, a fruit of justifying faith in Christ Jesus and his blood. The intro it is Psalm 115, a couple verses, and the antiphon is, I believe, from Psalm 25. Correct. It's the traditional antiphon for this Sunday reminiscera in throughout the church's history in Lent. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Now Psalm 115, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So faith is up front in this psalm. When we say, Lord, remember your mercy and your love, these are the things that our faith is trusting in. 
we're asking him likewise because we believe he's trustworthy. He doesn't make promises to be steadfast in his love toward us idly. Therefore, faith pushes on God and says, hear me, keep your promise to me, Lord. That, that is exactly the attitude faith ought to have. It's trust in his promises. Faith is trust in a strong and trustworthy Lord who's, who's worthy of that trust. He is our shield, it says. And faith expects good from him. This wonderful statement about he will bless us, in fact, and we will bless him for it. We will give thanks and show gratitude for that. This is beautiful to see the Lord remembering his own promises that we are bold to beseech him on the basis of. Here we're going to anticipate with this intro the promises that we're going to hear made to Abraham in our Old Testament reading, also to his wife Sarai, which include not just him, but also his offspring, which is meant in two senses. Maybe the most natural sense to Abraham would be, and that's the startling unseen promise at the moment, that he would actually have heirs and children. But we know that there is only not many offsprings, but one offspring, Christ Jesus, in whom all nations are blessed. So this is including not only all Christians, all Israelites, but everyone who in Christ calls upon that name and is saved. We see them all in clarity in him. And so we ourselves are waiting now, not for Christ to come, not for the offspring, but for the fruition of everything that he has accomplished. That will happen at the last. How does the collect read? Oh God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have no strength of ourselves, it says. We look to him for strength, for rescue even. This was originally paired with that woman whose daughter was oppressed by a demon, overcome by it, who clung after Jesus and chased him around, and Jesus almost seemed to reject her. I'm not sent to the Gentiles, and yet she persisted, and the Lord said, oh, amazing, how great is your faith, and this from a Canaanite woman. Here, we're going to ask that he could defend us today as we look at faith enduring all sorts of trials that he would defend us, not simply that he would remove or make adversity impossible for us so we would just be sitting back relaxed, but rather that he would defend us from them and in them so that these afflictions, which we can expect to be with us as followers of Christ, will not overcome us, will not win the victory over us. In many ways, then, this collect is imitating what Paul says quite famously, and I think everybody knows this from Jesus loves me. When I am weak, then I am strong, because then I am trusting in the one who is truly strong, the rock who is higher than I, Christ Jesus. We are looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, with Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We'll get into the Old Testament reading in Genesis 17 next. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. 
You'll find cell phone cases for issues, etc. Lutheran Public Radio, the word of the Lord endures forever, and Luther's seal with the Reformation Solas. Cross weh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support issues, etc. Cross weh.com slash LPR. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Theology has consequences. It doesn't live just in ivory towers, but actually in the very choices and daily lives of God's people as they live out what they believe and confess in the world. To learn more about how theology affects our daily lives, this February issue of The Lutheran Witness discusses how the theology of Seminex affected the very lives of God's people in the LCMS and how God worked to preserve his church. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. The Old Testament reading is Genesis 17, selected verses beginning at verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, between your offspring after you throughout your generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. We skip just a bit to come to verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. All right, so we have the naming of Abraham and Sarah, that they get their full names, you might say. Names that mean something. Abraham is the father of a multitude, and Sarah is the princess of that one from whom kings will come. You can hear that mentioned in the Lord's message as well. But it's also the promise of a covenant and a kingdom, and particularly in connection to the offspring. We hear the promise that he is going to have a son. We know that this promise is made and renewed in a couple places in Genesis, that Isaac will be the promise, that it's not going to be through Ishmael, it's not going to be through any other way, but that in connection with the offspring from Abraham, that's how there's going to be salvation, and through Sarah as well. So faith is going to grasp these promises. All these things that the Lord is saying to Abraham seem amazing. And of course, he's come out of his land simply at the word of the Lord, and he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Lord promised him a son. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed the covenant that he would be with Abraham, and by believing it, 
It was credited to him as righteousness. Faith grasps onto the promises, even though they're pointed into the future. And if you want a longer explanation of this, you need only to go to Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, which speaks about this very thing, including Abraham and Sarah, but also with many other saints, that none of those old patriarchs actually saw in the flesh the thing they were waiting for, right? None of them got to be living at the time when the Christ came. Only John the Baptist did. He was the last great prophet as a result of it. And yet they trusted in it. Yet they believed the Lord would do good to them on account of his word. And they drew from it in their lifetime confidence, comfort, and resolve for what the Lord had them do in their place. This is going to be a model for us even after the Christ has come, because we don't have everything in fruition yet. We don't yet see all things subject under his feet. We don't have the devil thrown into the lake of fire, as Revelation says. We don't have our brand new glorified bodies like Christ was a few weeks ago at Transfiguration. But we will have that. So until then, our attitude of trust in his promises is, just as Hebrews says, faith that is certain of what is not seen because the one who promises is faithful. The psalm is Psalm 22, 23 and following, taking us and reminding us of Christ's passion. Yeah, and in fact, we're going to skip over the part that we know best, which is the retelling of Christ's passion, where it speaks about, they pierced my hands and my feet, the dogs surrounded me, they parted my garments among them. We're not going to hear any of that. We're going to hear the part that pertains to resurrection. So while we hear this, just think of this also in the faith and in the voice of Christ, the very same one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me at the beginning of the psalm? Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations." All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord, to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So marvelous, the very last word is, of course, one of the last words that Christ utters from the cross. It is finished. He has done it. He has achieved the fulfillment of all of the promises uttered to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the children of Israel. And what we hear in this voice is a prophecy of the resurrection and the outcome of Christ's passion, the object of his very faith as he undergoes the suffering on the cross. I think there was some debate lately that somebody had suggested that in order to be sin for us, Christ had actually sinned and lost faith on the cross. That strikes me as quite a blasphemous statement, in particular because of the way the psalm goes and expresses its faith so clearly. And this is the very words that are on Christ's mouth 
perfectly for our salvation. So in Psalm 31, for example, his last words, into your hands I commit my spirit, the very next line is, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. What is that if not the confidence that to commit ourselves to the Lord, for Christ to have committed himself to the Father, even the Father who had forsaken him on the cross, is to entrust himself to the one who judges justly and who in fact will vindicate him as he does in the resurrection. Likewise, then, we hear in this psalm, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, which it sure seemed like he had. Isn't this what the crowds yell at Jesus? Come down from the cross if you're really the Son of God. Surely if he desires you, he will take delight in you and rescue you. Well, what the Lord actually delights in is steadfast love, and the way he is enacting his steadfast love for us is to have his Son be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. So he has not despised or abhorred this. He has actually treasured this. He has received this as a complete and acceptable sacrifice to him on behalf of the sins of the human race. And as a result, then, this offspring has come. He has accomplished it. He has done it. And we're left with the song of the church kind of gathered around Christ's cross, knowing that he has risen from the dead and marveling in what has been done here, telling it praising him among the nations as well as among his own people, and passing this on to posterity, which is marvelous that the Lord actually attends to the offspring that continue after the one offspring comes. We should see in this, by the way, a fulfillment of what Jesus himself said, that if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it doesn't remain alone, but instead it actually springs up into more plants, into thousands of heads of grain. And he used this as an analogy for his death being the thing that gives us life, his resurrection bringing us in his train also. And we see that this was already being prophesied by Christ as he prayed David's psalm here from his own cross. We will get into the epistle reading for this coming Sunday according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer in Romans 5 next. week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with more grace. Resist, if the Lord wills, warning to the rich, and patience in suffering. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. 
Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration, the 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org conferences. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Faith, Once for All, Delivered to the Saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. It's an authority issue. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the family-friendly streaming platform, Answers TV. This week, we've looked at the question, did we evolve from ape-like creatures? And we've seen the Word of God gives a clear and confident no. God created Adam from the dust and Eve from his side. Now, does this really matter? Can't Christians just agree to disagree? Well, no, and here's why. If you read Genesis on its own, you won't find evolution or millions of years anywhere. Those ideas come from outside Scripture. So what's really happening is the ideas of man are held up as the authority over God's clear word. But humans are fallible. We should never put ourselves as authorities over God's perfect, infallible word. Find answers to your questions, fun family content, and biblical worldview teaching on our streaming platform, Answers TV. Learn more at AnswersRadio.com. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February is the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13-27 through 27 by Issues Etc. guest Dr. Paul Robbie. He begins his commentary with an all-new translation of that section of Isaiah, a way of easing his readers into a very detailed commentary on a very important set of prophecies. You can find out more about the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah chapters 13-27 through 27 at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We are looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. Sean, we come to the epistle that you discussed at the beginning of our conversation, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It's a shame, of course, we don't get to hear everything before it. It starts with, therefore, that does imply that you'd want to read what came before it. But this is a fine place to begin a chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that means we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Marvelous. And behind all of it, I suppose, with this reconciliation word is not only that he has reconciled us to the Father, but more than that, that he also has reconciled Jews and Gentiles, Paul writing here to the Romans. But what I want to focus on first is faith and its fruits. That's kind of what we have in the first five verses. Since we've been justified by faith, I hope you've been paying attention to Christ's death and that uh, now our righteousness has been revealed from heaven apart from the law, even though it's borne witness to by those laws and prophets. Faith produces something. It produces a fruit in us. And these are the ones that Paul lists here. Peace. This is the word that Jesus utters as he shows his wounds, as he comes out of his grave on Easter Sunday. Peace be with you. And this is the message of forgiveness, right? Which brings calm, peace. There's no longer war anymore. We say the gospel is a message of a victory that has been won. It's a victory that isn't conquering us. It's a victory that says now there is peace and there won't be any war anymore between heaven and earth. The Lord is at peace with us by the blood of Christ. Access to God. This is what the temple famously gave the Old Testament, but in an incomplete way, as Hebrews speaks of. Now it is complete in Christ Jesus, as we heard. He's done it. It is finished. And joy and hope as well. Now hope in particular is what Paul builds on now when he shifts and says, not only have we got all this stuff that we might say is abstract or or we might say is lives with God in heaven, what's his disposition toward us, he's gracious, but actually this gives us some ammunition for right now in our lives now. We, in fact, when we suffer, have hope and can have joy. So everything that Christ has accomplished, everything that is promised to us that has not yet been revealed, eternal life, resurrection from the dead, freedom from all sin and the weakness of this flesh, while we are waiting for that, those promises from Christ are of great benefit and value to us. So we have a joy, he says, that persists even though sorrow may surround us. We have the ability to endure, to bear up under all sorts of trials, to not give up because of what he has done. And we have a hope that is anchored in what is absolutely certain. This is what it means to have this hope not be put to shame. Our hope is not a wish, as we often use the word hope, a pious wish that is probably a hope against hope. Our hope is anchored into the future, trusting in his promises, certain that just as he has risen from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. So this joy and the strength is given to us in the midst of hardship and in the midst of sorrow. And Paul says it mirrors the character of the salvation that we've received. It's God's work entirely, not as a reward, 
but out of his grace and undeserved mercy. That's what leads Paul kind of backwards, logically, would say, to talk again about this justification that we have, which is received by faith, that it was not based on our works in the least. Maybe for a good person, someone would die. What Christ has done is truly amazing. As, as it says elsewhere in the scriptures, the just perished for the unjust. He is the justifier of the ungodly, for the ungodly, for Gentiles, but even for Jews, those who have not kept his law. Christ, the righteous one, has died. He's given himself in exchange for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul, I suppose, is an example par excellence of this. While he was breathing murderous threats and watching Stephen be stoned, Stephen was echoing Christ's words, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Even while Paul didn't know Christ, Christ was dying for his salvation. This is marvelous. And this gives us then courage. It emboldens us as we bear with temptations, as we bear with sufferings, as we have to bear our cross. We're about to hear in the gospel. He is going to save and he's going to sustain us uh, through all of this. The ones he's reconciled, he'll bring us to eternal life. Therefore, as we look at this whole epistle, we see that what is promised to our sight in the future is already ours now by faith. And, and Paul wants all Christians uh, to who are justified by faith, who have come to the great news that the Lord has done away with their sins and they're at peace with God, to have that peace forvade them now and sustain them even when things look like there's no hope. Because my goodness, if Christ, as Romans 8 does say, if Christ is for us, we have every hope. Who could be against us? What are the gradual in verse? Oh, come, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase, the founder and perfecter of our faith, definitely jumps out today when we're looking at faith. So this is the same Lord, Christ. Why would we look to him? Well, he's the offspring of Abraham, the one that Abraham saw and was glad about his day. This is the very same Lord who promised to Abraham and on down the line. It's also the Lord who founds. He's the one who establishes that promise and its certainty. He does this by his death and his resurrection. It is finished. His work in the flesh founds and firms and shows this to be a solid, trustworthy promise backed with his own blood. And then it also means he is the Lord who is going to bring it to completion and fruition. We know that's to be seen finally when his day comes, when we will behold him seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For now, though, his Christians are going to bear shame. His Christians are going to bear the cross after him. We ought to fix our eyes not on how bad things are and be sorry for ourselves, we ought to fix our eyes on Jesus, who has borne up in it, who has done all things well, who gives us the certainty of what is to come because of his blood, and therefore who promises to sustain us in the difficulties. Our verse today really does match well with the gradual. It's uh, from our gospel. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Now, the Roman Church, interestingly, has a different gospel option. So does the uh, the Revised Common Lectionary. And that is the Transfiguration Gospel, which we, of course, heard a couple Sundays ago. And that gospel does come immediately after our text today. We have Peter's confession. We have the prediction of Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. We have Peter say, heck no, Lord. And then the Lord rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan after which Jesus teaches about this cost of discipleship, it's sometimes called. Uh, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's right after that that they go up the mountain of transfiguration. So here we are a little out of step. But to return to the message, however, and see that we are not really coming down into the season of Lent. We're not coming down from happy, ordinary times into the difficult times temporarily of spiritual warfare or of repentance and wrestling against sin in our flesh. Actually, transfiguration is the unusual time. What is ordinary is to follow Christ, and that is to bear the cross. What is marvelous and what is to come forever, of course, is the glorification that they saw for that moment. And that's also the explanation then that's given to Peter when he says, this can't be, Lord. And this is the reason why Jesus says he is having satanic thoughts. He's following someone else as if he opposes Christ's cross or opposes the endurance of crosses after Christ for the sake of him and for the gospel. And that is a deadly thing to us. That's why we want to take this verse to heart, and we'll discuss a little more here when we come to the context in the gospel reading. Up next, the gospel reading in Mark chapter 8, the confession of Peter. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. Come join LCMS Worship for the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th, 2024, at Concordia University, Nebraska. We'll gather under the theme, The Songs of Deliverance, and focus on the Psalms together. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Do you long for a church that celebrates the divine service with reverence and joy, but without the unbiblical baggage imposed by a supposedly infallible hierarchy? Do you long for a church that confesses a divinely instituted office of the holy ministry for the giving of the Lord's gifts to his people and yet values and lifts high the priesthood of all believers? 
Welcome to the Lutheran Church. We're what you've been looking for. Find an historic, authentic church near you on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor John Denzer is our guest. We are looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, the second Sunday in Lent. We come to the Gospel reading, Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one about him. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of men. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? But what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." All right, it's really a two or almost a three-part gospel reading here. The first part is the confession of Peter. He, of course, steps up and gives the answer on behalf of everyone. You are the Christ. We have a very short version in Mark's gospel. So this much they get. And what is strange is, of course, they're told to keep quiet about it in Mark's gospel. They're not supposed to tell everybody that. Why? Why are they not supposed to tell him that he's the Christ, that he's the greatest of them all, that he's far greater even than people might think he is? Just John the Baptist come back from the dead or Elijah, that's pretty great, or one of the prophets, maybe even the prophet. Well, how is he great? That's the question. And he is great in his suffering. He's great in his death and in his resurrection. That's what needs to be proclaimed. That's where he is to be recognized because that is where he is doing the work of his office as the Christ of God, the Messiah. This is the good reason, I guess, why a lot of people think the word Messiah means a savior. It does in the case of Jesus, even though it technically means the anointed one. What is he anointed for? To save us, and particularly in this way, by suffering, by being rejected, by dying, and by rising. Maybe that's one thing that we should note here during the season of Lent. Not a surprise to us what comes at the end. Jesus himself says it right here, and he repeats it multiple times in each gospel, that he will suffer and he will die and he will rise again. So it should never have been a surprise or something to doubt 
for the disciples when he rose from the dead, or the women claimed he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. We also then, as we're progressing through Lent, yes, we're going to follow the suffering and the passion of Christ, but we never do it as if he were currently dead or as if we didn't know that he was going to be risen from the dead. All of this is of one piece with itself. He says this, though, very plainly so that Peter understands uh, this is not some enigmatic saying. Jesus really thinks he is going to die, and somehow he overlooks the fact that he's going to rise from the dead. The things of God are revealed by the scriptures. They often are strange to us, but the thing that is strange about them is that they're not the kind of glory that we're after, self-aggrandizing, living the easy life. Consider what Paul says in Philippians when he shows us the mind of Christ. He says that the mind of Christ is to not consider the equality that was his with God, something to be grasped and clung to tightly, but Christ humbled himself. This is the mind that we also ought to gain from him. Then we come to, again, our verse, the nature of discipleship and this discipline of belonging to Christ. I'll read it for you again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The first thing is denying ourselves. This is a huge part of the purpose of Lent in our lives, which is we set this time aside as a whole church as a time of repentance, penitence, for the purpose of mortifying our flesh. That's what any discipline, whether it's fasting, almsgiving, more deliberate prayer is, is in order to crucify our flesh, to put to death the sinful nature in us, uh, and to deny ourselves. This is good. It's not something that saves us, of course, but this matches with the desire of repentance, this selflessness. I find this very fruitful uh, in a world that doesn't want to deny itself anything, that is always concerned with how I can get my own or how I can help myself or care for myself. It's very helpful to see that an essential part of being a Christian is actually to deny yourself, whether that's your desires, but also maybe even the things that seem to come most naturally. Because we recognize what comes most naturally to us is tainted and corrupted with sin that lives in each of us. I mean, it can't get much worse than what Jesus said to Peter, that Satan's own will was coming out in his words. Uh, so this is necessary. With that, though, then, the Lord blesses our sufferings and calls them crosses. This is the origin of that term. I think we have to try and stop the pendulum that constantly swings back between Christianity as a way that will make your life better, just full stop. Every, every Christian is uh, roses and sunshine, uh, and you'll be rich. That prosperity gospel, they call it sometimes. And the opposite, which is almost quit your whining you aren't really suffering any crosses, and to suggest that you are is a little arrogant, as if every hangnail you get is really a cross that you bear, and that seems uh, overblown, to put it lightly. Well, Jesus is the one who uses this phrase, so we need to understand how he means it and not be afraid to use it. Uh, if someone's wimpy, call them on that right? Hebrews does this, for example. It kind of shames us a little when it says, endure as Christ has endured. You know, I noticed that not any of you have endured to the point of shedding your blood yet. That's how much the Lord endured. So receive the discipline as sons and continue in it. 
That's a fine thing to say. Nevertheless, the call notice is to resist, whether you're resisting in small or in great ways. And what must be resisted most of, amazingly of all is ourselves, our very flesh that is in league with sin, with death, and with the devil. So I think this is a very fruitful passage then, especially for those besetting, addictive sins and temptations that seem so close to our wills and who we are and what we want and desire and feel. Uh, because this discipline that Jesus is saying, this bearing of a cross, carrying it, fighting constantly against those temptations, denying ourselves, it implies a continued resistance. Luke adds the word daily to this, which is helpful. And the third part, that we follow him. That is uh, why we can't ignore that Christ is our example, even if, if first and foremost he is our savior and our rescuer. He is also an example to us. He calls on us to follow him. And he calls not just the disciples, but all the crowd to do this. Why? For my sake, for the gospel's sake, we'd be willing to give up everything as if this were our life, for which nobody would you know, gain the whole world uh, and lose your life, you still lost. For us, our life comes from Christ. It is his gospel. I would tie this especially back to the rejected part of Christ's prediction. Sometimes this is almost used to say the only thing you can really call persecution or a cross is if you're suffering for preaching the gospel and someone says, no, we're going to martyr you because we don't want to hear about Jesus. That's a little too narrow for Jesus. He's talking about the sort of even small persecution that we face when we follow him and are rejected on account of it. We're asked to trade our souls and our lives, and our eternal life for smaller things far more often than we are asked to exchange them for acknowledging the name of Jesus or trampling on a cross or denying him publicly. And all of those are serious battles, however small they may seem. In fact, I suppose it's worse if we capitulate in the small battles. Jesus says, whoever would, this implies a disposition, not just a single action alone. I think that can be comforting to those who have, in fact, acknowledged they failed. They have not always confessed Christ first and foremost and sacrificed for his sake. Well, Peter himself would have this problem, not only today when he's called Satan, but also later when he would fail and deny the Lord three times. And yet the Lord actually singled him out in the promise of the resurrection and said, you have to go and tell Peter that I am risen from the dead. Uh, he comes and appears to him. The Lord forgives him. So what the Lord is saying is not that each instance of failing him is unforgivable, but he's acknowledging that each instance is succumbing to that temptation and is leading us into that disposition that would be one that leads to death, that would turn away from all of what Christ has for the sake of even a small amount of comfort. Where's faith in all this? Faith is rooted in the promise which is not yet seen, as, as we saw in Abraham. Christ dies in what way? In faith, we would say. He prays the Psalms. He expects the resurrection and deliverance, even as the Father withdraws his grace and pours out his wrath on Christ against all of the world's sin. When we follow Christ in faith, we do the same. We pray. We expect the resurrection, just as Jesus did. We expect every deliverance from Christ and the Father because he holds on to our life. And we know that on account of Christ, here's what's different. He doesn't withdraw his grace from us. We don't make the exchanges that save our life. Rather, he has done that for us. So it's important to see this passage connected. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, uh, 
That's the one who the father will be ashamed of on the last day. I particularly like the way Mark words it because every once in a while in our day and age, we get people who say, I have no problem with Jesus and I want people to be Christ-like, maybe a follower of Christ, but I don't like your teaching, especially a teaching that might say that this is wrong, even one that would make Jesus a person who might actually have a judgment to make. Jesus says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, they go together. They're not to be divided. Our confession of Christ isn't only a confession of, strictly speaking, the gospel that he forgives sins. It's also a confession of, I mean, frankly, a lot of what Jesus preaches, that the law is not to be diminished in any way. In fact, it has to become so condemning that none of us escapes us, that all of us repent of our sins and trust solely and only in Christ Jesus. That's the sort of faith that justifies. Uh, And therefore, we're not ashamed of everything that Jesus says. Uh, We don't want to be ashamed of him or his words. They go together. You can't have one without the other. And then the promise is that those who hold on to this, who endure all kinds of shame and rejection and hardship on account of clinging to Jesus, at the last day, they will not be ashamed. Sean, with just a minute here, the hymn of the day is a great one, Lord Thee I Love With All My Heart. It is. And we know this best for the last stanza that's about the resurrection. And with so much talk about endurance, I think it's fantastic for us simply to see that. Pay attention to stanza two, though, because it does give us comfort in this life, that in this poor life of labor, give me this, Lord, let me glorify you in some small way, even if it's by the same sort of glory that you had through enduring hardships. Let me stand firm. Let me help my neighbor. Let me not fall subject to false teaching. Don't let Satan have his way with me. Give me strength. Give me patience to bear my cross and follow you. And the promise that ought to be made between stanzas two and three that we should recognize is, the Lord says, who has shared my cross there will find with me a crown. Those who are conformed to my image in the crucifixion in their sufferings will also share in my resurrection. So take heart and be of good courage and don't give up. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thanks. Peace be with you. Next week on Issues Etc., we'll have Dr. Reed Lessing lead us in a teaching on the book of Zechariah. We'll talk to Pastor Andrew Packer about the church militant and the church triumphant, and we'll continue our series responding to Roman Catholic proof texts with Dr. Stephen Parks. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.